Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me today are pod regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, we take a deep dive into Chelsea's turmoil, assess the state of the club's relationship with Antonio Conte and ask how it all affects Real Madrid's long-standing interest in Eden Hazard. As Riyad Mahrez takes the huff over his failed move to join Pep's City Revolution, we ask who's to blame and how to fix a poison situation at Leicester. And as Mo Salah continues to take the Premier League by storm, we look at Liverpool's chances of keeping a player whose form has propelled him to the top of every major club's shopping list. Okay, we're going to start with Chelsea. Duncan, we sat here on our first ever Transfer Window podcast and talked about Conte and you felt at the time that it was going to be difficult to foresee him finishing the season as Chelsea boss. Now, that was six, seven months ago. Has anything changed? I think we're just seeing the end game now. I mean, I was looking back uh, this morning, the first time I wrote about the problems between Conte and uh, the board over transfers, and it was actually March um, 2016, uh, so in the, or sorry, March 2017. So when they were on the way to the title, that's when I, I was first hearing from Conte's camp that he would not um, sign a new contract at Chelsea unless he got assurances over uh, over proper recruitment and the players he thought he needed to uh, try and win the Champions League, which was his personal aim and what the club were asking him to do. Um, and uh, we know he signed the contract in the end, but he didn't extend. So it was a sort of messy compromise. Um, it, Kay, I was told not long after that that Conte regretted signing the contract and, and felt that he should have um, left in the summer because uh, the, the situation rapidly, from his perspective, became horrible <coughs> again. The reason he didn't leave in the summer was because he would have had to pay the club a huge severance fee on that contract and um, he wanted to avoid that. And that's kind of what's happening now. Um, talking again to people close to Conte this week, uh, they're very clear that it's over and it's just a matter of time. Um, they uh, don't expect him to last until the end of the season and uh, they feel that he would be happy to be sacked Um in the coming weeks um, and I think you see the evidence of that in his behaviour, you see the evidence of that in the results in the field you see the evidence in that in sort of murmurings that the players are complaining about his training methods which were always going to be a problem and his um, attitude around the training ground and and I think that's that's essentially on top of the, the conflicts that every manager has over transfers with the Chelsea board um, particularly after they win titles, it gets worse after they win titles. Ironically, is um, this element of being messed around by the club, um, and in Conte's case, um, you talk to people close to him. You say, well, when things get <coughs> wrong, go, start going wrong for him, he cannot emotionally handle it, 
Um, he he comes down hard on the players. He comes down hard on himself. But he can't he can't keep a lid, and he can't keep a balance. And they were they were clear going into the season. They 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 saw the differences between the club and and Conte being so great that there would come a point where results started to go, and that would boil over, and then you you get into this period of uh, waiting for the club to sack him. I think as well, um, it should be fairly self-evident that a team with as much quality, a club, a squad with as much quality as Chelsea, should not, there's no excuse for them to perform so pathetically with three defeats in a row as they did in the uh, League Cup semi-final defeat to Arsenal and then the losses uh, at home to Bournemouth and then away to Watford because they were they were like a ghost side and... That in itself, it's it's what both Duncan and I have seen over the years, um, especially at Chelsea. Um, <clears throat> the players begin to lose faith. They know the manager's a dead man walking. The players are, um, you know, inherently selfish. They think about themselves and their own future. They think, well, if this manager's not going to be here, do I want to be here? Am I going to be here? Uh, what are my options? And when you players lose focus, you lose football matches. And there's no one at Chelsea is kidding themselves. That that's not the case with within the dressing room, and this marriage of inconvenience that that continues uh, is not sustainable. The only reason he's not been sacked already is because they've yet to agree terms with anyone to come in. Uh, I think there was um, something of uh, 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 let's say, let's say a feeling at the club that if they could find someone to take over on a short term basis until the end of the season. Um, then that would be preferable because the two candidates that they have, Luis Enrique and Carlo Ancelotti, have made it clear that they don't want to come in um, mid-season um, and, and clean up someone else's mess. They want a clean slate. Now, in uh, the past, that the go-to man has always been Gus Hiddink, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Hiddink is now sick of being caretaker manager at Chelsea, even if he gets paid three or four million pounds for doing it, having done it twice already. And so Chelsea are struggling a little bit with this. There is a will to sack him now, but without a suitable replacement to take over for the rest of the season, without a suitable even replacement uh, at the club uh, in terms of you know a coach who could take over. Remember the way in which Robert Roberto Di Matteo took over for the rest of the season from Andre Villas-Boas. There's no one even like there who can do that. So they're in a bind. Um, and from Conte's point of view, everything he says, everything he does, even his team selections suggest that he wants to be sacked and be released from this sort of personal hell now. Go back to Duncan's point briefly about you know how things break down between Chelsea managers and their club. Yes, this is a pattern. Um, in, in Conte's case, I think as it was in Jose Mourinho's both times when he left Chelsea, uh, both managers had won the title um, in the previous season. Both managers are very, um, very well aware of their own value. They are incredibly professional. And they say, quite simply, look, this is a matter of respect, self-respect and professional respect. I have won things for this club. I have made this club successful, sometimes in situations when they've no right to be, be Premier League winners, etc. Uh, you owe me the personal and professional respect of allowing me to have a say on transfers because, after all, the buck stops with me. It'll be my job that I lose when players st stop performing or if the team hasn't got enough of one position or that or this and anything else in the team. So... 
Conte being that sort of Latin temperament, and he had many conversations last summer about what he felt was a lack of self, uh, lack of respect from the club to him, um, but decided to, to to have a go at it anyway. That's now come to an end, and you know, as I said, it's it's it's. I don't think he will still be there at the end of the season. I think there will have to be uh, a, a sort of cauterising of this wound if Chelsea are to have any chance of progressing in the Champions League or any chance of, of making top four, both of which are looking unlikely right now at this moment. That's the key thing, Ian, isn't it? If, if Conte pushes it as he is clearly pushing at the moment, that suddenly Chelsea's Champions League qualification comes into doubt. And that's the thing that's going to force Chelsea's hand over dismissing him because they, they won't want to lose um, access to the revenue stream that the Champions League is is crucially important to them. And Conte knows that. Yeah. Ian, you, you mentioned Ancelotti and Enrique there. Uh, there's been a bit of speculation surrounding Maurizio Sarri of um, mm. Napoli. Now, that'd be exciting from a point of view of the football, from a, from a footballing point of view, because obviously Napoli plays some phenomenal football. But from a transfer window point of view, you look at their, their side and there's just a, a plethora of talent there, Alan, Koulibaly, Callihan, Insignia, Hamshik. Do you think that's a, a potential move to Chelsea or do you think that the, the more recent um, speculation linking them to Arsenal is actually nearer to the mark? Um, I, with Chelsea, you can never rule anything, to be honest, uh, Johnny. It's, it's, it's that kind of club. It, it's whose flavour of the day, not even flavour of the month, with regards to people on the board. Um, what Chelsea have suffered from, or indeed have thrived on over Roman Abramovich's reign, is the political power play that goes on in the background. You've got uh, a figurehead and owner who never speaks, barely seen in public, but who is very much involved with the football club. He's very powerful, obviously. He's very rich. And then you've got people who are employed by him who are desperate to curry favour because if they do, they get pay rises, they keep their job, and Roman thinks they're great. So everyone has an opinion, whether it's on the manager or the left winger or the reserve goalkeeper. Everyone wants to be proven right. Everyone can't be right. And therefore, you've got this constant gnawing at Roman's ear. This is the guy. This is the guy. This is the way we should do it. This is the way we should play. We should sack him now. We shouldn't sack him now. All the time. And that's why Roman's had as many managers as he's had in years owning the club. Now, it has been a model of success so far. I think Sarri is is a... you know, a cred- credible candidate, but doesn't quite have the same experience uh, European-wise. Uh, he's not won a Champions League like Enrique and Ancelotti. Ancelotti obviously has been at the club before, uh, was sacked too early, even by Roman's um, now uh, reformed opinion. And so, you know, has everything there that he, you know, he could come in before the end of the season, smooth the waters and then take them into next season. Uh, and, and he is a much more diplomatic uh, personality than Conte is. He can uh, get players on side. He's much more um, empathetic towards his players, treats them like humans, uh, listens to them if they've got problems with training, problems with the way they're set up or play. Um, so he would be, for me, the, the, the number one candidate. Um, I think Enrique is someone they've, they've spoken to but doesn't want to break off his sabbatical, would prefer to come in for pre-season. And Sarri, obviously, uh, would cost probably a lot of money to get out of Napoli. As for bringing some of his players with him, then, I don't know if you've ever been to Naples, Johnny, but... Um, I, would, I got married there, so... Have you? Well, OK, well, have you, have you been to the ground? Have you been to a game? Have you, have you kind of, you know... In terms of the way they run the club, let's just say it's not an easy place to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and our Italian well, listeners will know exactly what I'm saying. 
What could you possibly be referencing, Ian? Indeed. <laughs> and I am. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say with Luis Enrique, it's obvious the uh, appeal to Roman Abramovich there. I mean, Abramovich has long had an obsession with Barcelona Football Club. He spent uh, years and years and years trying to convince Pep Guardiola to come to Chelsea and uh, and turn Chelsea into the, the London Barcelona. And Guardiola was sensible enough to choose a club where he would um, have a, a less uh, difficult person to work for, uh, better players to work with, and 100% support from the board as well as... Uh, a much bigger budget because Chelsea aren't big spenders net anymore. Um, they spend gross, but they, they shift a lot of players out and they're not at the top of the transfer market anymore. So you can see why he'd want the, the guy who came in subsequent to Guardiola and won um, Liga and Champions League. What's interesting for me about Enrique is he's essentially Antonio Conte, um, just in a with a different name, a different face, he will um, come into conflict with the board over the the issues that um, Conte has come into conflict with the board. He works the players hard. Um, you you can see possibly a first year of success, but I couldn't see Enrique surviving two years there. And maybe Enrique's aware of that and looking at the other um, jobs that are opening up this summer um, for which he'll be candidates. So. I don't think there's any any guarantee that they can get him, even if they decide he is the the man for the job. Chelsea have sold this um, PR line for several years now that the secret of their success is changing managers on a regular basis. And it, it's one that, to be fair, um, a lot of their supporters have bought into and some people in the media have bought into. Um, and, you know, they have won a, a decent amount of trophies, but the question you've got to ask is, do they win because they change their managers or they, do they win despite changing the manager? So they, they, they have Roman Abramovich took over the club in 2003. He's won five Premier League titles, three of them um, under Mourinho, under the one manager, one to Ancelotti, one to Conte. So the hit rate isn't that high. Um, and, and moreover, the hit rate's concentrated on one particular manager. The, the average duration of a, of a, of a Chelsea manager's um, tenure at the club is 490 days. Conte is currently at 573, which makes him the third longest survivor of all. And Mourinho has lasted the longest in his first stint, so the first actual Abramovich appointment, which is 1,204 days. Um, I wonder if they're going to be able to carry on selling this story of um, change is good because there's no question for me that their squad, while it's had a lot of money spent on it and gross, they spent more than Manchester United this year. Um, while it's had money spent on it, it's in the weakest state it's been for a long time. The, the, the core of players that were at the club when Abramovich came in and, and when Mourinho came in, so Frank Lampard, John Terry, Plus the guys that were brought in by Mourinho initially, so Drogba uh, is a you know arch example there. So Ricardo Carvalho is long gone now, but was a, a key component in in that early success. Um, all of those players are gone, and then you've now got Eden Hazard, um, Thibaut Courtois, 
um, and N'Golo Kante. Um, so you're probably down to three um, top-class you know, players that any Premier League manager would want to have in their team as the core of that squad. And question marks over whether at least two of those will still be at the club um, past the summer because both are subject to um, contract offers from the club, which they've not accepted. You saw Thibaut Courtois give a, an interview this week in which he openly talked about um, waiting to see if Real Madrid solidify their long-standing interest in him to make him a contract offer and that he, he sees his career uh, in Madrid in the long term. He's, he's, he's seriously thinking about signing a new contact with Chelsea, but what he said essentially is, if, if Madrid come in for me now, if they let me know they want me now, I'll, I won't sign that contract and I will uh, agitate to get out of the club. Um, so even if they retain Courtois Hazard, there's a lot of work to be done in that squad and they're going to be in terms of unless Roman Abramovich throws a lot of money at the project again they're going to be well down the pecking order of spending in the English Premier League for reinforcements so if I'm a manager looking at that, those circumstances I'm thinking that's a tough job to go into it's always been a tough job to go into but usually you're, you're at least the best financed or second best financed in England but that's not the case anymore I agree with you, Duncan. I think there's a, a choice now for any manager to make coming in because not only um, do they face the infamous uh, Russian revolver um, <laughs> over the over the course of their entire uh, time they survive at Chelsea, but even the core of the squad is not there. And you may well, whoever it is, lose Hazard and Courtois. In doing so, it's highly unlikely the new manager will have full say on who replaces those two players who are more or less irreplaceable in today's market. So, I mean, you're kind of <clears throat> really managing with one arm tied behind your back uh, at Chelsea. And any manager who's worth his soul, any manager who really believes in himself and believes uh, that he should be uh, given the opportunity to make the decisions, the key decisions, which affect his opportunity not only to win football matches, but to remain at the club at enough uh, are long enough to win a trophy and therefore then go on to sustain success is going to look at that situation and think, mm, I'm not sure that's for me. In which case, Johnny, we've come back to possibly your mention of Sarri because Sarri has never managed at an elite level club before, um, hasn't won the Champions League. Therefore, maybe he thinks, he fancies himself and thinks, you know what, I'll take on all comers and I don't mind. I'll fight for, for my you know, right to demise Chelsea. And usually, usually there will always be someone in that category, who looks at it and thinks, do you know what, I'll back myself. And do you know what, if I get sacked, I'll be leaving with 10, 12, 15 million quid better off because that's what the Chelsea, on average, pay managers they sack. So um, maybe for Sarri, it's a win-win. I think for other managers who've got a reputation that they've built up very carefully uh, through success at other clubs, we'll look at it a very different way. Okay, guys, uh, moving on to one of the other big stories of the week with Riyad Mahrez going on strike. <coughs> Duncan, being a socialist from the People's Republic of Dundee, you'll back him. <laughs> Look, I, I can understand both sides of the equation with, with Mahrez. Um, I think had Manchester City 
made that approach much earlier than they did, then I think Leicester's response would have been very different. Um, I think that the, the biggest complication there was that Manchester City essentially decided in the space of a few days after Leroy Sané got injured um, on the bidding of Pep Guardiola that he needed um, cover for Sané's injury, which is not a long-term one, and he wanted um, money diverted from Fred's transfer, which will go through in the summer anyway, um, to signing uh, a winger to um, strengthen up his squad, with particularly with the Champions League in, in mind. So they, so they came in extremely rapidly towards the end of the window, uh, throwing obviously a large amount of money at Mares. So Mares was going to say, yes, I, will, I want that move. Um, I get to I get to join the the squad that's um, almost certain to win the Premier League and have a chance a good very good chance of winning the Champions League. I'll get a very big pay rise. I get to work for Guardiola. Um, it's it's a step up in a career that most players are going to take on. But you've got there's two sides to the equation when you want to get a player out of a club. You've got to convince the club that that um, owns his contract that it's in their interest to let him go. And I, and I fully understand why Leicester City said, this is the January window. This guy is very important to a team that's turned itself around um, after a terrible start. Manager's doing well. Um, we don't want to lose him. If you're going to take him, you're going to pay over the odds for Riyad Mahrez, and that price is £95 million. Um, so they, they, they didn't say no deal. They said, it's going to be a very expensive deal. And we know you only want this guy as a backup. We know he's not coming in as first choice. So let's see how, how rich the Abu Dhabi, Dhabi coffers are and whether you're prepared to go to that extent to look after your manager. And City said, no, we're not going there. Um, what happens next is interesting. I, I, I'm not convinced that City will come back in the summer for Riyad Mahrez because I don't actually see him as being uh, the first choice for uh, a backup um, winger, which is our backup forward in, in, in the system, which is what Guardiola is looking at. Unless, <laughs> unless Raheem Sterling forces his exit from the club over, over um, uh, the, the improved contract he's trying to get at the moment, you, you, or Sterling or Sani get long-term injuries, you, you can't see a switch from having Sterling and Sani as first choice um, in those positions. I can see them signing another a forward of Gabriel Jesus' type, if they can find one, sort of young, very flexible, the kind of player that Guardiola likes to work with, who are you know open to his coaching methods. Um, maybe maybe they should go for Ejo Nacho, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if, uh, yeah, if Ejo Nacho was a different type of forward, I don't think he would ever have left uh, uh Manchester City. It's just he, 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 his particular way of operating as a centre forward doesn't fit Guardiola's model of of mobility and um, being able to interact <coughs> with the rest of the team. But you know, if you give, if you get what I'm saying is, if you give Pep Guardiola a clean slate and a summer window when he's not making a decision in the space of a few days and saying, "I need a backup. Who's available? Who can you sign?" I don't think Rian Mahrez will be top of that list. Um, so if Mares is going to uh, hold out with, with Leicester City 
and the expectation he'll get his move in the summer, I think he could be sadly mistaken. He might get his move elsewhere. And, and I'm sure his agent, his new agent, Keir Jirabshin, will, will work very hard to get him a move elsewhere and a big pay rise and, and, and obviously a big commission for himself. But I'd say there's no guarantee that, that City will come back for Mares in the same way, or worse actually, than they came back for Alexis Sanchez but weren't prepared to uh, increase the offer when, when Sanchez asked for more money in, the, in January than he did in, in the summer. And yeah, I mean, look at it from Leicester's point of view as well. Um, they they have wealthy owners. They don't need to sell. They're not in a position where they have to sell. Therefore, um, a player agitating and behaving in a very inappropriate manner in terms of as a professional uh, trying to uh, get his force his way out is actually going to just wind them up. Um, yeah, they don't need to sell him. They know that he's important to the team. I'm sure Claude Perel has told them he doesn't want to lose him. Um, also, look at the valuation. Gilfie Sigerson went for fifty million pounds to Everton from Swansea. Now, look at Swan. Look at Sigerson's stats compared to Mara's stats in the last two seasons. They're incomparable. Mara's is literally twice the player Sigerson is, and yet they were offering sixty-five million pounds, which is not twice the price. So the ninety-five million valuation, to me, in this inflated market, for whatever that means, was correct. And Duncan's right. Manchester City weren't prepared to pay that level of fee for a player who effectively was going to be a reserve player once Sani's fit again. Therefore, let's look at City look at it and say, well, if you're not going to make it worth our while, then we're not going to sell him because not only can we not replace him at this late time in the window, i.e. two days before, but also you're not even offering the amount of money that he's actually worth in the current market. Why, why did the agent not secure a release clause? And is this why he's got a new agent? Um, well, as we know, release clauses are still fairly um, uncommon in, in English football players' contracts. And the reason for that, Johnny, is that unlike uh, a rescission clause in Spain, like the buyout clause, they are not enforceable. Like you can't go to the, um, the, the Premier League with you know, £95 million pounds, uh, of a cheque and say, I am buying out Riyad Mahrez's contract. The way that Barcelona PSG did when they went to the LFP and did for Neymar, therefore releasing that player from his contract. It's only a release clause that if it's met, then the club who owns the contract is, uh, or must, by terms of the agreement, open negotiations with the club who want to buy. Now, we saw this happen when Arsenal offered £40 million and £1 for Luis Suarez, because Suarez had a release clause of £40 million. But since Liverpool were not open to negotiate, with um, or certainly didn't want to negotiate with Arsenal for his sale, um, then they did have a conversation which they were duty bound to have, but then said, no, your bid's a joke. Now, that will be the same for every release clause unless it is legally enforced in a player's contract, which at this moment in time in this country, there is no precedent for that. So I'm not saying that the agent who negotiated these, he's upgrading his contract after the Premier League winning season um, shouldn't have put a release clause in there, but at the time there was a lot of euphoria, he was probably getting these wages trebled. The whole squad got bought BMW i8s by the owner. Everyone was happy, except, of course, then, you know, Kante leaves, uh, Drinkwater leaves. But they held on to Vardy um, and a couple other players, to be fair, who had, you know, a lot of interest in them. So uh, this isn't the first. Maris has got previous. He tried to, um, he tried to uh, agitate his way out when Arsenal were in for him at the start of the season. It didn't work. He was given assurances about you know what might happen if he stayed and everything else. So 
I'm a little bit sympathy for Mares because I, I can imagine, but well, I'd like to be able to imagine what it'd be like to be wanted by Manchester City and being offered an excess of £130,000 a week to play football. However, I think the way that it panned out was pretty predictable. Yeah, look, Mares signed that new contract in the middle of August 2016, which sort of tells you he was probably waiting to assess his options that summer and, um, and he clearly didn't have the offer that was going to um, be acceptable to Leicester City and, and him. So he signed a new contract. And you're asking why the agent didn't put a release clause or didn't negotiate to put a release clause into the contract. Maybe he did. Um, but, you know, from Leicester City's point of view, if you, if you want a release clause in the contract, you take a lower wage. It's, you know, it's a trade-off um, because you're, you're um, reducing the potential value of the player should they decide to sell him. And that was... Obviously, a, a contract in, in which Mares was going to get a huge pay rise because he'd been signed for virtually nothing um, from um, <laughs> almost being unknown in, in French football. So um, clearly, he decided to take the, the higher wage and and uh, and wait and see what happened. Um, you know, there are no guarantees in football. You get. You, you you take the money when it's on the table most times, and then uh, try and see if you can get out if you if that's what you plan to do in other ways. And 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 obviously, Riyad Mahrez has used a strategy going into this window, which was to change to one of the the better known agents who has a history of getting players out of clubs um, against the club's uh, will. So you know did it with Carlos Tevez at Manchester City and caused all kinds of trouble there and, and has been involved in getting Philippe Coutinho out of Liverpool. So that's probably part of Mahrez's thinking in, in signing for, for Kier Girabshin. Um We'll see in the summer if, if it works for him, if he gets the move he wants. Ian, you've obviously got some experience of the dark arts of the media. Um, <laughs> how do you begin to resolve this, this issue, I mean, uh, is very negative in terms of the way Mares has been portrayed just generally. So yeah. how does he start to bring bring that all back together if he's going to come well, back into this Leicester team? The first thing to do for Mares is turn up for training. He's been absent for five days now. Um, Leicester City, you know, have an important Premier League match this weekend. Um, he should be on the pitch, not a walled somewhere else. Um, from my understanding, he's quite a volatile character. Uh, since um, his rise to fame, he has uh, developed an ego which can be quite difficult to deal with, both for teammates and his manager. He's clearly a very skilled, very talented player, uh, which you know comes with a, a fairly cliched notion of the maverick personality. Uh, he can, um, you know, other players put it this way in training: if he if he nutmegs them, he does this or does that, get annoyed with them. Uh, but as long as the team are winning and he's playing well, you put up with that in the dressing room, you put up with it, you know, as a teammate. However, when a player does this, there's a lot of sort of um, ill feeling and, you know, uh, phrases, phrases that always come, you are know, said to me by, by players um, uh, who, if you like, are not of that maverick talent or who are of stronger uh, moral core, always say you would or you wouldn't want to be in the trenches with that guy. And I think it's fairly obvious None of the Leicester players would want to be in the trenches with Riyad Mahrez right now. However, if you asked him that question two seasons ago when he was supplying and scoring 
incredible goals uh, which led Leicester to win the Premier League title, the answer would have been different. So it's up to Mares now to convince both his teammates, his manager, the club and the fans that he's committed to Leicester City for the rest of the season. Once he does that, and you know, I've had personal experience just in the past few weeks with a, a player I know well who got some adverse publicity, and my advice to him was, go ahead and make your own headlines, go out there, play well, score goals, and you will be writing your own headlines, your own positive headlines, and you know what? The rest will take care of itself because it's how players react in adversity that we see their real character, not how they react when things are going well. And Mares must now show that he has spirit um, and the ability to overcome this adversity. Otherwise, he'll just fade away in the Leicester under-23 team and he'll be sold for, to a, a club he doesn't want to go to for a lot of his money next summer. Simple as that. I think just, just from Leicester's perspective, we should add... So one other thing that's happened in the Premier League, this even this season, in a, in a similar kind of situation where um, you look at Southampton and Virgil van Dijk, van Dijk did pretty much a similar, took a similar path in terms of trying to manufacture his exit in the summer when Southampton refused to sell to Liverpool because of their illegal approach. So he did stop training, he stopped playing, he was left out of the team for a long time. He got back into the team. I don't think he played particularly well. One of the ironies of, of, of him moving to Liverpool subsequently is I don't think he had a particularly good few months in the Southampton defence when he was picked. Yet, Liverpool come and offer more money than they were offering in the summer for the player and Southampton take a, a record fee for a centre-back who in the Liverpool team, now he's in the middle of it, hasn't exactly covered himself with glory either. So if you're Leicester City... Perhaps part of your calculation is, why should we accept the fee that Manchester City are pushing upon us now? Um, we saw what happened with Virgil van Dijk and Southampton got more money by holding the player um, to his contract uh, until the next transfer window. Maybe that will happen with us. We don't need to sell. We don't need to be bounced into this. We, we as owners, as Ian pointed out, are rich enough to be able to take the hit if that's necessary. But maybe it will be a profitable situation to wait and sell in the summer and get more money. And just a little, footnote to that, a little footnote to that as well regarding another Leicester City player who did leave. And this is how random um, and uh, your football can be uh, something that you think of one day means nothing comes back to bite you in the bum. <laughs> and that's Islam Slimani, who wanted to move to, uh, from Leicester City to West Ham. Uh, in this window, preferred West Ham, as we know, he ended up at Newcastle United, but he wants to go to West Ham. And I know for a fact the Leicester City uh, owners decided not to send him to West Ham purely because Karen Brady wrote a very derogatory column about the Leicester City dismissed Claudia Ranieri in her newspaper column 17, 18 months ago. So they, they made the decision based on their own personal grievance about Karen Brady's behaviour. In a, in a newspaper column, and they decided that Slamani would not join West Ham as a result. Now, those are the conditions that can actually send clubs down, and it's as simple, as random as say as that. So, uh, you know, Leicester City, um, they're not a club to be messed with. Okay, moving on from one player that set the Premier League alight to another that is currently setting the Premier League alight, which is Mo Salah with 28 goals so far. He's been on fire. Guys, how long can Liverpool keep a player that's playing as well as this? And we've seen in the past with Suarez, with Coutinho, they haven't been able to hold on to their stars. Is history going to repeat itself with Mo Salah? I think 
if he continues to play the way he's been playing this season, and there's no you know obvious reason why he shouldn't, because this is his you know his first season as a as a regular, you know, having the confidence of being a regular choice in a Premier League team and scoring at an incredible rate, and not just scoring at an incredible rate, contributing to the team in a in a very impressive fashion, then you'd have to say that unless Liverpool start winning trophies, and certainly unless Liverpool are regular um, Champions League qualifiers, like qualifiers the Champions League every season, then he's going to become a target for other clubs. And I don't see any particular reason why he would want to stay at Liverpool if his ambitions for silverware can't be met there. Um, I, I think there's been some interesting comments coming out of Egypt from people close to Mo Salah and there is a suggestion there that Real Madrid are interested um, or more than interested, strongly interested in the player and again that, there, there is sense to that um, Madrid as we, talk, we talked about in the podcast last week will almost certainly recruit a new um, striker in the summer um, the first choice is likely to be Harry Kane but as we, as we discussed last week, that's going to be a very difficult deal to make happen. It's going to be the more, probably 200 million minimum if you can convince Daniel Levy to um, allow the sale and if you can convince Harry Kane to, to leave Tottenham at this stage of his career. So then if that's not possible this summer, then Madrid will be looking at other candidates. And there's probably not that many obvious candidates for striker on the European market at the moment. That's one of the reasons why when Manchester United had to buy a centre-forward last summer, they ended up paying big money for Romelu Lukaku, who was not top of Jose Mourinho's list um, and would not be... If if you'd given Jose Mourinho a free option to go around uh, world football and choose the player he wanted for that position, I I guarantee you Lukaku wouldn't have been the, the player he chose. But that was the, the, the best option available, so they spent large money to do it. So, no Kane deal. Perhaps Madrid try moving for Salah, who would not cost as much as Kane um, and would probably be easier to extract in terms of the player's interest in going to the club and leaving where he is now um, to, to switch and build it and, and push his career further on at a club like Madrid. Well, one of the things... Uh... Well, sorry. The, the the three things which players decide upon their future are the club they're going to, as opposed to the club they're leaving, the money in terms of financial incentive on offer, and the location of the club they're moving to. Generally speaking, those are the three main criteria that, that a player will decide upon any player when moving from one club to another. Right now, Mo Salah is at a club which has a great history, but not a great recent history, and is not winning trophies. He's currently uh, on £90,000 a week, which was an improvement of, I think, around £35,000 a week on his Roma contract. So he's not even the highest-paid player at Liverpool by by far, a far stretch. And he's living in northwest of England, where it's cloudy and rainy most of the time. So you take those three things uh, and compare them to Real Madrid, who, where they were more than double his salary, where he's bound to be in contention for every trophy they, they enter. And he's living in one of the you know most uh, cosmopolitan capitals 
uh, with great weather, we always have to put that in, uh, in European football, you'd have to say that that's a no-brainer for Salah. What I would not be surprised to learn, and if they are in any way a little bit clever, Liverpool will already be renegotiating an upgrade on Salah's contract as we speak. They should be, and if they're not, they better start soon because they can change one of those factors, and that's the financial uh, benefit to Salah of staying at Liverpool. They can't change the other two until they win a trophy, and they can't move Liverpool to south of Spain. So they're going to have to do something else, and that is improve his contract. Therefore, if I'm Liverpool, uh, if I'm the chief exec there, if I'm the board there, I'm saying, do you know what? This guy is dynamite. He has Suarez all over again. Get him on a better contract. Make him on the highest paid person. Make him feel loved. Because he knows he feels loved by the by the fans. He clearly enjoys playing for Liverpool. enjoys playing that front three with Sane, uh, with Manny sorry, and Firmino. So you might just be able to hold him for another year if you give him a better deal. But you won't be able to hold him if you simply just leave him alone and say, ha-ha, oh, Mo, you're playing great. Well done, son. Uh, you know, uh, just keep on doing it and, we'll, and we'll, we'll love you forever. That doesn't. That's not how football works. On an adjoining note, Duncan... Is there a slight feeling of pain from Jose Mourinho regarding Salah and how well he's doing? Given like Kevin De Bruyne, he's a player that, that was let go from Chelsea and has taken the Premier League by, by storm. I don't think so. I think um, with the, you know, the De Bruyne thing, we actually did a, quite an extensive podcast on it um, with Christoph Terror uh, last year. Christoph's very close to, to Kevin. And he explained um, how that actually panned out and how it was De Bruyne who, who requested to leave and, and wanted out of uh, Chelsea and didn't want a battle for a place. And Mourinho actually um, uh, got him to stay an extra window um, because he wanted to, to uh, see how he could develop him at Chelsea and also was, uh, his advice was only to loan the player rather than to sell. Um, so it was very much De Bruyne... Uh, forced that move and, and the, the circumstances of players that De Bruyne was competing against in terms of them having just signed Willian, they had Oscar, Hazard, um, uh, Schürrle had just been bought by the club, not by Mourinho, uh, going into the season they came back. He was, he was, De Bruyne was fifth in the pecking order and, and didn't want to deal with being fifth in the pecking order. And Salah was a purchase that Chelsea made with um, with his marketing value in mind. They liked the idea of an African, uh, North African star. Um, they thought that the club could do commercially well out of that. And obviously he'd, he'd uh, impressed with Basel, um, scored a lot of goals there, uh, been an effective attacking weapon in European football. So it seemed like a, it was almost a, a gamble buy where you had the insurance of his uh, commercial value and you see how he developed. And Salah wasn't able to handle being a reserve player. He pretty much came into the same situation as De Bruyne did, i.e. he was down. The, he was bought as a, as a winger rather than a, a central striker. And he was down the pecking order um, and had to uh, play cup matches come off the bench and, and try and force his way into the team through what he did in the training ground. And he didn't manage to achieve that. And I think, I think Salah has spoken about it himself, saying that it was too early for him in England. And he's, he's very much a different player now for the years he's had in Italy, gone to teams where he was 
in the first team as a guaranteed starter, getting lots of minutes and able to perform that way. And you know, it's it's not an uncommon story in football that you, if you go take too many jumps at one time, you don't get in the team, yeah. and then your development stalls. So you, it's all very well to say. Uh, look, Mo Salah at Liverpool, four years down the line, he's the best striker in the Premier League. What on earth were Chelsea doing letting him go? How could Mourinho not put him in the team? Well, he wasn't that player four years ago. He's a different player. Um, so you, you cannot, you simply cannot make that comparison. You have to, the manager's judgment is not, um, when you're managing a club like Chelsea or Liverpool, for example, the judgment is not, how do I best develop this player and his his future interests? That's a secondary element. Your your job is to get performances on the field and win titles for the club. And if a player can't um, meld into that in his own development, then then he becomes expendable. So you 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 work with the players who are more important to you at the time. And and sometimes you just can't you can't make it work for a player at a club and he goes elsewhere. You know, Alvaro Morata has had a good, very good first half to the season, was being talked about as being the best striker in the league um, early on in his career with Chelsea. He's, he's dipped well off that now, but he's had two spells at Real Madrid where he didn't manage to establish himself fully at the team and did pretty well at Juventus when he was, when he was given that licence well enough that Madrid would take him back, but eventually they sold him because he wasn't good enough for what they required at the time and and has been good enough for Chelsea for six months, but isn't good enough for them at the moment. So, you know, it's more complicated than it's, the than the, I'd the say you're right, Duncan. It is. There is an element of the unknown, of the unpredictable. Uh, investing in a young footballer is like investing in a, in a Premier crew wine. You, you don't know how it's going to mature. And therefore, you don't know how good it's going to taste or what its future value might be. For instance, a Chateau Petrus in 1989, uh, not a good harvest. But however, if you'd invested it then, you'd be getting five grand for your, for your bottle now that you paid maybe £500 in 89. That'd be really annoyed to find that the 2014, the very same grape, the very same vineyard has produced a wine, which is also worth in excess of five grand now. And it's only been maturing for four years. Now, there you go. That's the unpredictable nature of both wine and young footballers. If McGarry serves Petrus at his house, I'm going to suddenly become a lot more friendly with him, Duncan. I don't know if <laughs> I, he, only, he only puts the Petrus out for the, uh, the unwelcome guests. <laughs> blue, blue none for everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> Buckfast. <laughs> Sorry, right, yeah. I, just, I, I just thought that analogy might just uh, you know be for our finer connoisseurs of football out there. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, so we're going to move on to the quick fire round, guys. Saturday sees Tottenham against Arsenal at Wembley, twelve thirty kickoff, big game. So what I'm going to put to you is a combined eleven. So we're going to start off with you, Duncan. It's going to be a four-five-one formation. Who's your goalkeeper? Uh, the goalkeeper, I would. I would just go for Hugo Lloris ahead of Petr Cech. Um, I think a few years back it would definitely have been Cech. I think he was the the top goalkeeper in the Premier League for quite some time. But his um, having to play in that defence has has uh, I think has worn him down a bit. And um, Lloris is is the better option at present. Ian Bellerin or Aurier? Uh I would go for Serge Aurier purely for the battling. Uh, uh, qualities that he has, I think, when it's, it comes to a derby game like this, 
Uh, it's not for the faint-hearted, uh, and that's not even a cliche. That's exactly what it should be uh, in a North London derby. So, or or you think me? Duncan, centre back. Um, I thought you were going to give me two options there. Well, uh, what you, for... what you just choose? There's so many options. I'll I'll have the best of them. I'll have Toby Alderweireld. He's the he's the best of the bunch at centre back between those two clubs. Uh, I gave him the easy option there, Ian. So you've got to come in with the. Mustafi for me. Again, because of the qualities he has, the battles hard. Uh, he, he can. He's, he's prone to slips and concentration, but in a big game like that, this that, sh- that shouldn't be a problem. So um, for me, I know that Neil Koscielny etc. would have um, more experience, but I think Koscielny has been error prone. Some of the stuff I would go for. Okay, left back. That's a tough one because they're not. Um, there's no one really informed there of the left backs to choose from. I'd go for Danny Rose um, if he was you know, on, on the basis of him being fully fit I think he's better considerably better than, than Ben Davis better than the Arsenal options but I think that's been a, a real weak point in Tottenham's side this team is having to play Ben Davis which was showing up at the weekend against Liverpool when Mo Salah uh, took him to pieces for that uh, second goal Okay I'm the manager and you two are the coaches so I'm looking for a sitting midfielder here so who do I play in there? Eric Dyer for me, um, I think he shouldn't be played uh, as he has been at centre uh, defence for Arsenal. I think he's got much more to offer than that. Um, and his ability to guard the back four and his experience as a central defender helps that as well. So one of those two I'd go for would be Dyer. OK, Duncan, box-to-box midfield player? When he's, when he's fit, Mr um, Dembele, um, I so the performances he's put in in, in recent weeks, uh, particularly against Manchester United, is exceptionally good. Um, the problem with Dembele is uh, he, he struggles um, with with injuries, so you don't get him there all the time. My my holding midfielder would have been Victor Wanyama. By the way, I'd, I'd have Victor ahead of uh, Eric Dyer. I think he's a he's a no more time for the in this in this quick fire round, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, number ten. Who are we going to go for? A couple of decent options there. I, I... I have to go for Christian Eriksen, big fan of his. I think he's playing uh, remarkable football um, and uh, I think Tottenham are lucky to have him in that sense as well. Uh, that will sound bad to Tottenham fans, but I think he's flourished. Uh, he he gives you everything. The range of passing, uh, incredible reading of the game, his, his vision and, of course, goals as well as assists. Uh, so for me, it would have to be him. OK, going to the left side of the attack... Left side, um, since since Ericsson's got the number 10 spot, I'd put Mesut Ozil in. I think uh, when you've got him as a, an option of to have an 11, you have to have him because his, his, his passing is so good. His ability to create chances is, is as good as anyone else in the Premier League. Um, obviously, it comes with deficits, but you want him in the side. And Ian, right midfield or right right attack? Controversial here for uh, all you Ingerland fans out there. I'm putting Hoyman's son in there instead of uh, Deli Ali. I think that's on form. I think uh, Ali has been out of sorts. I think Son, uh, um, conversely, has been uh, wonderful um, this season. Uh, he scores goals uh, from different positions. I love the soft feet. You know, we say soft hands in cricket for a player who can play the subtle shots. I think that's exactly what Son does. He has soft feet. He can uh, control the ball in very tight situations, get himself out of tight situations and players into space ahead of him. As I said, goals and assists for me, uh, possibly Spurs player of the season so far, and that's even with Harry Kane considered. And finally, Duncan, to top us off, 
striker. Yeah, I just say I'm a huge fan of Sun as well. I like South Korean footballers, having covered them in 2002 World Cup. I love, love the attitude with which they play. And then, yeah, striker's easy, isn't it? It's Harry Kane. has to be. So we're not exactly over and imbued with our, uh, Arsenal players in that lineup. I, actually, I think that reflects some, the, current, the current balance. I think that reflects the current balance uh, in between the two teams. Um, you know, Arsenal, albeit they're in a cup final, uh, you know, they lost uh, really poorly to, to Swansea City and they're they're liable to do, to have games like that. And um, whereas Tottenham have got a little bit more about them. Um, you know, they, they, they have got more drive, they've got more youth, they're more, you know, they seem to have more ambition uh, when they play football, when they go forward. So I think that's a fair reflection where the two, two clubs are. And you know what? I don't think you find many Arsenal fans arguing with that as well. I think the fact that we've, we shoehorned Ozil in there will, will actually, you know, be enough succour for Arsenal fans. Yeah, you could probably put Aaron Ramsey in instead of uh, Dembele. Um, you know, he'd get more games over the course of the season. Anyway, that that would be a, a point of argument. But at least we didn't manage to pick a team that's all Tottenham players. And, Indeed, and that would be dreadful. Deluge with uh, Twitter abuse for the yeah. next week. Troll, trolled by <laughs> Arsenal FC. Guys, just one last quick question. Just regarding Obama Young, how do you reckon he's going to settle in at Arsenal? Obviously, a very, very good start. Well, he, look, well, every player... Um, you would like to think starts off with a massive amount of enthusiasm um, and application. Uh, and Aubameyang, you know, clearly in his assistant goal uh, and his debut was was you know looked to have all those um, attributes. Uh, what happens um, despite Aubameyang's um, very very impressive goals scored record over the last four seasons in Europe is that when things don't go so well for him or the team, then he tends to slip out of this, the picture a little bit. And loses that confidence, that uh, that instinct, that uh, ambition, and so uh, as I said before, uh, with Riyad Mahrez, judge players when they're in adversity, not not when they're in clover. Yeah, look at Obama Young, as I think Ian talked in great detail about in the podcast before he moved to Arsenal. There's no questioning his goal scoring skills. It's the it's the whole package that is the reason why he's at Arsenal now instead of you know Manchester United or. Uh, or Madrid or Chelsea um, he's a lot every big club has had a look at him because of the way he played in the Bundesliga and they've all said no so he, he's yeah. he's ended up being the oh god we've got to buy someone because Alexis Sanchez is leaving for Manchester City we've already bought a centre forward in the last window but never mind this this will keep the fans happy uh, just one quick addendum to that as well. Um, if anyone saw the picture of him shaking hands with Arsene Wenger, he's wearing a jumper with his initials on it in massive letters, P-E-A. It's like, is that in case he forgets? <laughs> that I just found that bizarre. Look it up on the internet, people. It is bizarre. Modern football. Maybe, maybe, maybe <laughs> he's the big P as opposed to the little P at West Ham United. Well, he wouldn't take much to be bigger than Chica. <laughs> you would have caught Davey Neary doing that, lads. You would not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, that's all from us. Uh, thanks to Duncan and to Ian for joining me. You can continue the debate with us on Twitter. You can get Duncan at Duncan Castles and you can get Ian at Garbo SG. I did get it right this time, Ian. If you, you like did. the pod... <laughs> we we just heard the Hungarian pronunciation. Garbos. Garbos. Um... <laughs> it sounds like a, a meaty soup, Garbos. If you like the podcast, please review and rate us. You can do that on iTunes and you can also subscribe there or Audio Boom or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, thanks for listening.